pray to the Lord. Uh, Father God, just thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity uh, to be here, um, just to speak your word, speak your truth. Um, I don't deserve it. I'm just a person that you saved, um, just by your blood, Lord, um, by your grace and your mercy. So I pray that you would just take a person like me and just speak truth uh, into lives of other believers. Um, that, Lord, that your spirit, who we don't have to invite him into this place. He, he lives in each of us. And, Lord, that he would speak through us, through your word. And, and God, help us to understand, to take something that was meant for one group of people and, Lord, make it applicable to our lives as well as it was meant to be. Um, Lord, just give us your truth today. Instruct us in your ways. Uh, rebuke us. Uh, lead us to repentance in our own hearts, in our own idolatry. And Lord, may we focus on your faithfulness. Um, we love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, what I'm going to do is just read verses 10 through 16, and then we're going to kind of break those down and discuss them this morning. In, in lieu of who God is. Uh, so, chapter 2 of Malachi, verse 10 says, Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So yesterday I had the opportunity, uh, me and Savannah went out to uh, this beautiful property where they were having a wedding of some longtime friends of ours. And... Um, we had the opportunity to see them kind of commit their lives to one another. They exchanged vows. Um, uh, they also exchanged rings. And they made a covenant to one another for the rest of their life. Um, and they made a covenant also before God. And I think all of us at some point or another have been to a wedding, have experienced that, and have seen it. Um, and it, it was a beautiful moment. Um, but as I reflected on this passage, and I got to thinking about um, just our human relationships, just how often we break our covenants with one another, um, even in marriage sometimes. Um, 
that God is always constant. You know, regardless of our human situations and our human relationships, God is always constant in our life. He's never changing. Um, He never seeks to break his covenant with us despite our own faithlessness. Um, He is always faithful. So, you know, the Bible says he never leaves or forsakes us. And what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, he uses this picture oftentimes of him being the husband and his people either being the wife or the bride. Um, And we see in that context that um, time and time again, his people were committing spiritual idolatry against him. So if we go back and we read the Old Testament throughout what we call redemptive history, we see it time and time again of where God's people commit spiritual idolatry and adultery against him. Oftentimes calling them um, some pretty profane names such as even a prostitute uh, because we have often prostituted ourselves out in idolatry to other things in our life where we have placed idols in our life in his place and so you know time and time again when we see that and we still do it to this very day it's not just an Israelite issue it's, it's a church issue as well uh, we tend to put things in his way and we make Sundays a sacred day for him but we don't worship him the rest of the week and we actually don't even make Sundays a sacred day we give him an hour or two hours of our time and we don't really find ourselves worshiping him daily as we're called to do. And despite all of that, it goes back to the fact that God is faithful. He, he is constant. Uh, the, despite us breaking uh, our part of the covenant, he never breaks his part. Um, despite us being idolatrous in our ways and worshiping other things and putting other things in his place, he is never that way. Uh, he never forsakes us. He never gives up on us. Um, so this brings me to the matter of the text today. So I, I did want to jump into this. And I, I wanted to kind of go back one thing, though. I want you to think about, as we've been on Sunday nights, if you've been with us, we've been talking about busyness, right? And there's a lot of things where we have put in the place um, busy things in our life. We like to say that we're busy. And we put these things of, idols in our life that make us busy and we kind of make God this um, secondary thing uh, that we kind of you know we worship him as a secondary object it's just something we do on the side and if we have time for him we will fit him into our schedule Um, folks that's idolatry Um, it's exactly what Israel did when they focused on other things and other idols and and believed uh, in their own way of life it is the exact same thing. And we have to be, quit being spiritual idolaters, especially in the church today. And going back to the fact that God is faithful in his covenant with his people, which is us. Remember, we have a new covenant in Jesus Christ. Um, he has promised us. So, um, and we, as a, as a church, we tend to, we like to flip back to the Old Testament and kind of judge Israel. Um, and kind of make judgments on, on Israel as a nation and be like, I can't believe as a people they did this over and over again despite God's faithfulness. Let's look at our own lives. How many times have, has God been faithful in our own lives yet 
time and time again, we revert back to our sin, revert back to our own idolatry, we revert back to trying to place something else in his place to satisfy us when he is the only thing that can satisfy us. So, it's not just a warning to Israel, but it's a warning throughout the ages to all people for spiritual fidelity in, in our lives as well. So when you look at Malachi, don't just sit there and, and think that Israel was, you know, a, a horrorous group of people um, that did not do as they were expected to do. Because we see it in Revelation too, the church. Time and time again, John the writer is reminding them you have done this, I'll take your lampstand away because of your sin unless you do this and repent and return to the Lord. So I think for the church today, not just our church, but the church especially in America, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to return back to our God uh, who has never broken his covenant with his people. Um, so as we think of this, uh, I wanted to kind of point you to Malachi verse um, chapter Sorry, chapter 2, verse 10. It's kind of interesting because Malachi poses this question. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So uh, what Malachi is doing, he's reminding the priest, he's reminding Israel, he's reminding his reader um, of the fact that God is two things here. One, he is the creator God and he also is our Father. So it's important for us to grasp that concept that he is, by questioning them, he is reminding them actually of who God's character and his person actually is. And he brings us back to that point and that man, through God being the creator, that man only exists because of who God is. You're only here today because God is gracious and merciful to allow you to be here. You only exist today because God the Creator set His affection upon you and created you. That He loved you. And out of that, that we don't deserve life other than that. And that is what Malachi is drawing the people of God back to here today is the fact that none of us deserve the Creator God. None of us deserve creation. None of us deserve life and breath in our lungs. But God has given us that. Because he is faithful. He is true. This forces us, as it did Israel, to consider our humble estate, right? I hope it does. When you compare yourself to nothing, to the fact that without God you wouldn't exist, to the creator God, to the covenant God, that we are nothing in our humble estate. And that's what he's doing to Israel here. He's drawing them back to this understanding that without God the Father, without Yahweh, without his covenant, you are nothing as a people. So there should be a little bit of humility on our, point, our side of things that I don't care what profession you're in, what you're doing in life, where you're at, who you think you are, uh, where you're at on the echelon of life, that you're nothing without God. And the fact that he has created you, he's reminding Israel of that, and he's reminding us that we need to also consider the humble estate that we come from, that God is creator. That's why he poses the question here. Has not one God created us? It also makes me reflect back to Paul's letter in Isaiah 
which Paul takes from, that he is the potter, we are the clay. The fact that God is supreme, or it shows his supremacy over all of creation. And I hope that's what we draw back to, is that he is supreme over all of our life. We should rightfully give him our all in worship. And not in worship, not in this, just this context, but in every day of life that you are worshiping him because he is supreme and we are not. That's what Israel had forgotten. The other title of father reminds us of how God had chosen and adopted Israel. Remember that? We'll go to a text here in a minute, but he had chosen and adopted Israel out of all the peoples. Nothing special about him. Abraham's an idol maker. He's not in Israel. God goes to him and calls a man out of his own country into another dwelling place. God chose him. He became the father of many nations. That apart from this important doctrine, if you don't get that, that Israel would be, have been more like any other nation. It would have been just as wicked just as evil, and they are. We see it time and time again. But through God's covenantal love, we time and time again see him being faithful. Fortunately for us in Israel, it's not contingent on anything that we do, but what he has done. So God had a redemptive plan before the foundation of the world, and he incorporated the lives of one man, Abraham, and many nations into that. He did. So before the foundation of the world, God chose a man and chose a people by that man. And so what we see, uh, Malachi writes to remind us of this truth by calling our God our Father and Creator. Um, he reminds us that God is faithful in His covenant despite Israel's inability to do so. And I could put that in our place too, despite our inability to do so. God is faithful in His covenant promises. I hope, if you walk out of here with nothing else today, I hope that you walk out with the fact that God is faithful in his covenant promises because he never breaks them. And that's what he is reminding the people here today. And uh, so when you think of, of the covenants that God has made with his people, we don't see any contingency on their part. So when we go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to read from there, but I'm going to bring you back to that. It is the covenant he makes with Abraham. He tells Abraham to go out and number the stars because that's going to be all the people under the covenant. What does he mean by that? Well, it's through the line of Jesus Christ that we know that we're all Abraham's family. So there's a covenantal promise that God makes there. He doesn't say, Abraham, if you do this, I'm going to do this. No, he takes Abraham out there, outside, says, look at the stars, number them, and that's going to be how many are in your family? That's your descendants. And he's talking about not just Israel. He's talking about the church. He's talking about believers. He's talking about the holy nation of God. So in Genesis 18, we always all remember this. God is reiterating that promise to him and Sarah. If you remember, they're old in age. Sarah laughs at him. And she's like, no, I didn't laugh. Remember God called her on it? Yeah, you did. You laughed. Um, but he's reminding them of the covenant promise. And what do we see time and time again after that is the fact that throughout Israel's redemptive history, God is not contingent. 
He doesn't fall away. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm done with you. Now, does he punish him? Does he discipline him? Yeah, he does. But does he ever just say, you know what? I'm done with this plan. It didn't work out. No, because God is constant in his covenant faithfulness. And then if you go and look at 2 Samuel, if you remember this, it's God talking to David. And God is telling David that there is going to be an eternal king that's to come. It's the Davidic covenant where he says, David, there's going to be one that sits on your throne for all of eternity. And we know that person in the name of Jesus Christ. We've sung about him this morning. Um, But we see that God, from the Abrahamic covenant, through the Davidic covenant, to the new covenant of Jesus Christ, shedding his blood on the cross, he has forever been faithful to us. Not because of anything that you did. There is nothing that you have provided God for him to uphold his covenant other than the fact that he is, he is not going to break his promise because of his very character, the core of who he is. So as you leave here today and you think on that, I hope that you can understand that God is faithful in every aspect and way of your life. Uh, even in some of the most difficult situations, difficult times, even when you sin in the most, uh, you know, grievous ways, that God is faithful uh, in his covenant. Um, it's such a comfort for me. I know when you know, I kind of get bogged down in sin or apathy or whatever it may be, I, I put an idol in my life that's in his way that God never breaks his covenant. I can go, always go back to him and repent because he loves me. And he desires that. Um, so yeah, we never see a, a, a statement in any of these of contingency or obligation of the covenants. Uh, even in the Mosaic covenant, the dependency was always on the covenant promise of God. As the law, if you remember, ultimately was a curse. The law is actually a curse. So by giving us the Mosaic covenant, it, it becomes a curse unto us. Why? Because it reveals our sinful nature. It shows us who we truly are. But who's the perfect lawgiver and who perfected the law? Jesus Christ did. So what it's ultimately pointing to, once again, is not, it's that humans, we cannot uphold the law. We cannot keep God's commandments. But God is ever faithful in his covenant of drawing a idolatrous, wicked, sinful people unto himself. That's how good and gracious our God is, is that he, we talk about propitiation this morning in some of our songs, that he would pour out his mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ that when God sees you as a believer, that he sees Jesus Christ's blood covering your sins. And then he puts the, perfect, um, the perfectness of Jesus Christ on us. Um, it's what we call double imputation. He imputes... Uh, judgment on Christ and he gives us Christ's righteousness and so when you think about that so when we look at these names and attributed to God in scripture like father and creator uh, it's more than just statements of endearment I think sometimes we'll, we kind of just blow through them right when we're reading text we just think oh he God creator God father that's great uh, that's not what it's saying here. It's more than just statements of endorsement. Instead, it points us to the covenantal promises and character of God um, and what transpires uh, when Israel forgets this truth. That's the question I ask. So what transpires? What happens out of that when Israel 
or ourselves forget this truth. Um, I want to remind you, because I think sometimes we, we think that Malachi butts up against maybe the New Testament. There was a 400-year gap of silence to Israel. And most people don't realize that Malachi was actually a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra. So Ezra comes back, and then Nehemiah, um, about, I think, around 15 years after that. And they're coming back, pleading to the, uh, the Syria, or not, sorry, Syrians, uh, to Cyrus um, of Persia, asking to come back to build, what, the temple and the wall? Malachi is a contemporary, so he's writing, and it's, so it's not long after their exile for doing the very same things. The sinful activity, the wickedness, the things that Malachi is calling them to here, that we see Israel reverts right back to the very same things that they were doing prior to them being cast into judgment into Babylon. It did not take them long to stray from the God of their covenant. So we see this kind of played out um, in verses chapter, or sorry, the end of chapter, or verse B, uh, 10b, sorry, um, and 16. So when people get away from the truth of who God is, it's easy to fall into disobedience, right? When we get away from that truth of understanding who God is, we can fall easily into disobedience. In the remainder of the text, uh, we see the word faithless five times. Five times we see the word faithless. And it's either to describe Israel or either God being corrected toward them. So we especially see this as Israel's unfaithfulness to God leads to two negative implications in their life. So here's the thing. When we are not faithful to God, it has, so that's a spiritual component, right? It has negative implications in our physical lives. And in this case, it's dealing with marriage. Um, and not only just, are we going to look at marriage today physically, but also from a spiritual standpoint. So these are the two charges brought against Israel. So I just want to read back over them and let you know. So at the end of verse 1, it says, Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So we see the first charge against them is, one, they're marrying the daughters of foreign gods. So what I want to do, I want to take you back just to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Read this. Read this. Just listen to this. This is Moses already telling them what is going to happen. Because God understands the, the wickedness of man's heart. The sinfulness of man's heart. So Moses is telling them this because God understands and that this is what's going to happen. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You see that? So God gives them the direct command, tells them to go into the land. There's seven nations before them, and that they're pretty much to give them up to complete destruction. No cattle, no hard, hard stuff here. No children, no women, no men. Complete destruction. Why? Because he knew if they did not do what he commanded, that they would go into the land, that they would intermarry, and they would end up serving other gods. Guess what happens? They do not listen to the Lord. And they do that very exact thing. And you can go find in, in uh, Solomon's life where that happens and takes place. Solomon ends up marrying many, many wives, and it talks about how towards the end of his life, he pretty much becomes idolatrous. He gives way over to those other nations and their gods and Baal. So we see that come to fruition. It says, Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them, and you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Can I say this? Read the Old Testament. None of that stuff ever happens. They are not obedient to the Lord uh, for the majority of, of Israel's history. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people from, for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number for any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So we see it reiterated right there that God has chosen them not because they were anything special about them, but because of the the oath that he had set forth, the covenant he had set forth because of his steadfast love for them. And the same is true of us. The second thing that he brings against in the charge, so I hope you see it, so they intermarry, right? They're marrying people of uh, other nationalities. They're incorporating their gods into their worship. The second thing is they do not honor the covenant of their own marriages. So you see the implications of this, right? When, when God is faithful and it trickles out into our life when we're not, that there's implications, there's negative implications to our life. In this case, to their marriages. So they're marrying outside of their culture and they're also marrying outside of, or they're breaking the vows of their own marriage. So listen to this, especially young people who are thinking of getting married important. Marriage is important to God. It says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
And that was the one God, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of your faithless, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So I want you to notice some things here, and I'm not going to pull you over to Isaiah 1 and, and read that whole section. But if you notice that first um, verse 13, there, there's hypocrisy in their worship. Um, because what's happening is that they're divorcing their wives, yet they're coming before the Lord in offering, and they're trying to bring something to him, and he's not accepting of it. And if you go back over to Isaiah 1, if you were to read it, they were doing the same thing at that point. They were idolatrous in their life and their way. And God tells them in Isaiah chapter 1 that I don't care about your festivals. I don't care about your offerings. I don't care about any of these things that you think that you're doing that's pleasing to me. And I'll say this this morning. God does not care about you coming in here and singing some songs, lifting your hands, saying amen, or any of those things when you have spiritual idolatry in your life. It is a barrier between you and him. And it actually breaks down into this very thing right here where it actually, in the marriage even so, it affects it. So let me say this. If in your marriages today, it can affect the way that you worship God. But that's not only what's underlying here. That's the, that is a physical, we can see on the surface aspect but what's lying underneath this is the spiritual implication of it. It's because they are neglecting who God is because they themselves want to live and do what they want to do. And by doing that, they're divorcing their wife of their youth. Why? Because that's what satisfies them. God's kind of over here. They bring the offerings to God. They pour out tears to God. But yet, it's useless because God's not interested in it because... Sin is what's filling their life. And they're not repentant of the things that they're doing. So we see hypocrisy in, in their worship. In verse 14, we see this broken covenant due to being faithless. What's, what's the writer doing here? He's contrasting the faithlessness of people versus that of God. He is showing how God is faithful and the people are faithless. There's a very big distinction there. See, men are a breaker of covenants and God is not. So what does he call them to do? Repent, return back to God. We need to do a lot of that, I believe, in our lives. I think, I think it's just so, um, in, in much of our lives today, we're so blind to it, to be honest with you. Given the culture that we live in and, and just the busyness of our lives and things that are going on, that we're just... a kind of oblivious to the fact that we have these idols in our life that are taking up um, God's place in our life. Verse 15, uh, we see here, marital union is more than physical but spiritual as well. And it mentions God's offspring. What's it getting at there? Well, it's talking about, as believers, we're raising children, right? If you have families, you're, you're raising children. And God's saying it's going to even have an effect on that. So if, if, 
if these things are occurring, and I know this is a tough topic, but if sin is ongoing in your life, and idolatry is ongoing in your life, and it's, it's breaking down into other parts of your life, like your marriage, and it, I could probably replace anything else in there as well, but it is ultimately going to affect your children. And the way God's covenant promise works is with his people is uh, live your life in the way of the Lord by his commandments and teach your children to do the same. And guess what that produces? A godly offspring. But if you're not doing those things and, and your children seeing that you're being idolatrous, guess what they're going to do? And we see it in our culture so bad right now where our children are putting God as, you know, well, sports are more important or, you know, uh, camping's more important or, uh, you know, my girlfriend's more important. All, all these things are more important than God. Where did they get that from? They got it probably from their parents because their parents, are they seeing them as being faithful? And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about being faithful coming here. I'm talking about, do they see you being faithful in every aspect of your life to the Lord? Because if you're doing that and you're teaching them the commandments of the Lord, not only by mouth, but by action, by the way you live, then you're going to be raising children of a godly offspring who understand that there is a God who lives and abides by His covenant. And then verse 16 we see here, Metaphorically, um, we see this stained garment unfit for worship. So if you kind of read that, you're like, what, what, what is that talking about? It says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Um, what, what does that mean? Well, it kind of goes back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verse 8. If you look at that, you want to write that down later. But... The idea of garment is this covering that God uh, was giving his people of purity. And, and the violence is this idea of impurity being placed on it, of blood being splattered on it, of, of being impure. So uh, what he's getting at here is that you are unfit for worship. It ties back into the earlier section of, uh, of 13 that who, who are you to come before the Lord to bring offerings and things when you are unfit for worship because you're doing this against your wife. You're not being true to her. And wives, this could be true of you too. Not true of, to your husband. So, the thing is here is that more than what's lying on the surface of just our marital relationships, um, I've already said this, but it's spiritual adultery as well. It, it just shows us that when we, we have these uh, issues of spiritual idolatry it plays out in our life in a very negative way so if you start to see things like that on the surface you need to examine what's going on um, in, in your heart, in your life and this is kind of what we've been focused on Malachi about anyways, it's a matter of the heart this wasn't just a matter of marriage, it was a matter of the heart Where where is your heart at? is it one of worship? towards God or is it one that is worshiping other things things that we want um, so I want, I want to show you uh, what would transpire in the lives of those who love God in return of his great love for us um, so when Israel's in good standing it's always because they're worship for God right if you, if you ever read back through the Old Testament and you look 
through the kings that are actually faithful to God, it's always because of their worship for God. And, and usually them breaking down idols and uh, being just faithful in their, the commandments of God and what God's expected of them to do. Um, out of that belief about God is produced either faithfulness toward God or disobedience. That's the only way we go. It's either faithful toward God or, or obedience. So you see, God's covenantal faithfulness always produces faithfulness in the life of the believer. So I put that word always in there because if you're a believer, it should be producing uh, faithfulness in your life. So when we look back at God's covenantal faithfulness, it should be producing faithfulness in us. And it, I didn't put this up there, but it made me think of First Peter, if you go read it. And, and Peter's kind of laying out this really long section of text in chapter 1 about our inheritance and he's kind of going from there about what God's done on our behalf and how he's blessing us and he says and you didn't even see him or know him but you loved him anyways talking about the church and right below that it says that you should uh, um, be holy as God is holy I'm like where does all this tie in together how why is he saying what Moses said back uh, in the Old Testament about us being holy for God is holy well it's because of the people understood God's covenant love that's why he reminded them actually of what Christ had done. He said, and you love them despite not ever even seeing Christ. So that's the thing for us is when we reflect back on that and we think about God's promise to us and his covenant faithfulness, how he's brought us from when we study the Abrahamic covenant. That's why the Old Testament's important. And we lead us through the Davidic covenant up to the new covenant of Jesus Christ and we look back at all that and what he's done on our behalf, then it's just like... I want to live for him. I love God because he first loved me. So some verses that come to mind. I'm just going to read them as we start to wrap up. So just remember that God's covenant faithfulness always produces faithfulness in the life of the believer. If it's not, you need to go back and reflect on God's covenant love. Because that's not changed. It's not going to change. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is what it's producing. Uh, Hebrews 12, if you remember, it's coming off, kind of piggybacking off of Hebrews 11, right? Talking about how all these people are faithful. Abraham, David. Um, and the writer goes on to say, I can't even write about all of these other people uh, like Samson. Um, and, and on verse 12, uh, the writer here says, uh, or, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance a race that is set before us. Get this. Looking to Jesus, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who are we looking at? Jesus. What is my point here? God's covenant faithful always produces faithfulness in the life of the believer. We're looking at Jesus. Because he's the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May that be what we look back at. Because that's what's going to produce faithfulness in us. 
It's not a list of things to do. It's not some pastor standing up here saying do X, Y, and Z or follow the Ten Commandments. It's the fact that Jesus perfected the Ten Commandments in all aspects of life, so we want to as well. We desire that. We want to love our neighbor. We want to love God because Christ has loved us so much. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is pointing to here. 1 Corinthians nine twenty four through 27 you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive it a perishable wreath, but an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And then Philippians three twelve through 14 says, Not that I have already obtained this or already am perfect. That's all of us, right? None of us are perfect. We've not obtained it at this point. But listen to what Paul says. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it his own. Brothers, I do not consider it that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. What, what, what do we see? This continuous thing appeal to look back at Christ to not look at oneself because we know that Christ is the faithful covenant maker so what how does one guard their spirit I just want to point you one remember the gospel that's what Paul tells us remember the gospel therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision talking about us by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So we didn't even belong to the covenants. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. For who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The second thing is fixate your mind on things above. Colossians 1.3 says, You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Don't think about the gospel, what Christ has done, but also fixate your mind on eternity. Fixate your mind on what God has already done and seek the things that are above. So as we live out what Christ has already accomplished, seek those things. Live it out. It says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Please understand, that's what the Israelites were doing here. They're setting their mind on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The third thing is immerse yourself in God's word. And we all know this passage. Um, if yeah, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he gives them a command there. Listen to how you do it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. How does that happen? It's definitely not by just coming here. You have to stay in the Word of God, permeate your life with the Word of God. And what it says here... It, you renews your mind over and over. So when we think back to the gospel, when we set our mind on things above, when we look at his word, and we think about the covenant of who God is, it is what renews our mind. And the fourth and final thing is commune with your heavenly father. 
that we have to be communing with him. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. We're, we are, you're actually, actually engaging in an active spiritual communing with him. Thanking him for the fact of the broken body of Jesus Christ and of the blood. And that's why we're going to take it here in a minute. But the other thing is too, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. You get that? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. When we're not doing those things, we're not focusing on who God is. Um, prayer without ceasing is kind of an interesting idea, right? Because you're thinking, do I need to be like praying through the day or what? I think that means be diligent in prayer. Be diligent in, in speaking to God and communing with Him. If, if you're going weeks and weeks and weeks or you're just offering up little prayers to God about somebody's help, no, spend time with God in the communion of prayer. And what I mean by communing with Him in prayer is, is spending time just talking to Him. And as He listens, He says, ask and seek. That's what He tells us. So may we take these things um, and the reason I brought them up is because verse 16 as we finish it says so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless this is how you guard yourself we remember who God is because the moment we don't do that we're going to falter and we're going to fall off in idolatry and whatever that looks like I've said that word a lot of times today but I can't even go into all the ways in this case it was divorce it was marriage. It was seeking other gods. For you, it's whatever's in, in place of who God is. And you seeking to satisfy that thing or satisfy your life by that thing in your life as opposed to God. So guard yourself, and this is how you guard yourself. There's just four ways you can do it. So I hope today as you leave that you can focus on the covenant promise of God and in that affects your walk with God. The fact that you're more faithful and not faithless to God. Good Lord in prayer. Father God, just thank you for today. The opportunity to be here uh, before you as a group of people gathered. Lord, um, and just first tucked away just in the middle of uh, just some strong passages about and thinking about where Malachi was and how the people had just come back. How we're so quick to forget you so quick to forget your covenantal promise and, and your love, your steadfast love for us. God, may we be reminded of it. May we saturate our minds in it every day so that we would be found faithful in you. Um, that, Lord, that we would long to live for you because not to appease you. Christ has done that on our behalf. But because we love you like those that Peter wrote to. Without even seeing you Lord, that we love you for what you have accomplished. So may we found, be found faithful, God, going forward. May we remove the idols of our life and repent to you. Lord, guide us as we go out of here into our daily lives. In your name I pray. Amen.